So have you ever listened to a podcast, maybe watched a show where you heard a disclaimer on the front end, something along the lines of the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speaker and may not necessarily represent this company. You know, something along those lines, right? And, and I always just thought that was genius because if they say something stupid, then they're off the hook. You know, they're saying it may not necessarily be representative of us. I feel like I need a little bit of a disclaimer this morning as we start this and continue on in our series of Revelation, and that is this. Here's the disclaimer. The, the views expressed here um, may not line up 100% with the way that you understand uh, this scripture. We're about to get into some places in Revelation where there are a lot of really smart, godly people that may have some different views on you know, what exactly is being said and what exactly is meant here. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. And that's why we said on the front end, it's important to approach a study like this with humility. I think it's also important to say, here's what, what we believe that the Scripture is teaching here. And here's why. And, and, and that's what we're going to do today. So we'll, we'll get into Jesus opening the seven seals. And that begins to unleash the judgment of God. And uh, we saw last week uh, that... John was given this vision in heaven, and no one was worthy to open the scrolls, and he began to weep, and then one of the elders said, no, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, he's able to do that, and, and then we go into all this worthiness, worthy is Jesus of, of, for, for who he is. So while there may be certain areas that we read and say, might not know with 100% certainty exactly uh, how we should understand this, what we do know, there are a lot of things we do know with 100% certainty, and one of those is that Jesus shed his blood to purchase people from every tribe and language and nation and people. We know that with 100% certainty. We know with 100% certainty uh, that the only way for us to be brought into the family of God is through Christ and through the, the, his blood that was shed for us. We know with 100% certainty that worthy is the Lamb. To receive glory and honor, power, wisdom, and blessing. We know all of that. Now let's do our best to understand what is going to happen between now and you know, leading into end times. And one of the questions that we need to answer that really plays into this, and we're going to be getting into Revelation 6 in a little while. You can turn there if you want, but a little bit longer getting there today because there's some background that's really important. Here's an important question that we have not addressed yet. Where is the church when all of this is happening? See, what we're, we're about to get into is the beginning of the tribulation. Where's the church? And this is one of those questions where there are godly people who disagree. Some would say the, the, the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. Some would say the church is raptured at the midway point of the tribulation. And by the way, I think you can make really strong biblical arguments for either of those. And I'll tell you which one I think is right here in a moment. Some would say the church isn't raptured at all. Um, I think that one's a little bit harder, in my opinion, to... Uh, to, to, to uh, have a biblical foundation for it. My belief is, my understanding of Scripture is, that the church is pulled out and is raptured before the tribulation. Uh, and if you want to talk about you know, ways to understand that in more depth and, and even some uh, Scripture that, uh, that we could go to there, we could certainly do that. But let me, let me start with one in particular, that this was a bit of a, a, a new insight. I, for some reason, had just missed this. Uh, previously, but in Matthew 24, you know, there's so many different places it, when you're talking about end times and you're talking about 
Where is the church and the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about meeting the Lord in the air. And you have to piece all these Matthew 24, Jesus talks about end times. You have to kind of piece this stuff together, right? And put the pieces of the puzzle together. Matthew 24, 36 through 44 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So clearly Jesus is talking here about rapture because he says two will be working, one will be taking, one left. The same with the two men, with the two women. So when does that happen? And this is what's interesting is that it points out in Matthew 24, this is the part that I hadn't seen before, um, the emphasis on the days of Noah, and then Luke 17, which is a parallel passage, talks about in the days of Lot. What was happening in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot that would be similar to Jesus coming back and, and believers meeting him in the air? And the answer is that in both of those cases, God was about to bring serious judgment, Right? He was about to pour out his wrath upon the sinfulness of the people. What did he do before he did that? He took Noah and his family and he removed them from that. And he took Lot and his family and he removed them from that. So an interesting little parallel there that that's probably why it talks about the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And they were removed um, before the judgment came. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about, Jesus descending from heaven with a loud cry. It says that believers will meet him in the air. Uh, the Greek word there is, is a word that means to be seized or to be snatched. That's where we get the idea of this term rapture. If you wonder where that word comes from, if you've ever heard somebody say the word rapture is not in the Bible. And that's a true statement. The word itself is not because that word came along later. It actually comes, uh, the word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 there where it says that we will be seized or caught up with the Lord in the air. Um, the, the Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Bible that became very popular. Um, and there is a Latin term, repio, which means, that's the translation of that word, to seize or, or to be caught up with. Uh, that's where we get the word rapture. So if you wonder where that comes from, um, it definitely comes from a biblical context. Um, I do believe that we will be removed before the tribulation starts. So what we're about to read in Revelation chapter 6, the church is no longer there. Now there will be believers there, as we'll talk about in a minute, because some will come to Christ even during that tribulation period. Uh, another point of emphasis in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you remember that passage, after he talks about all this, he says, we will meet the Lord in the air. And then it says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. How encouraging would it be if the message is you have to live through all of this tribulation that we're about to read? If, if, if we are subject to the wrath and the judgment that we're about to read about in Revelation chapter 6, that's, that's not too encouraging. 
Um, but there was a purpose, a very specific purpose for the tribulation and for the, the judgment of God. And there are really two things primarily that this was intended to do. One, it's to punish sin. Our sin deserves to be punished. And people are living in blatant rebellion toward God. I mean, we may look around today and say, oh my goodness, how much worse can it get? Let me tell you, it's going to get a lot worse. And as bad as things may be now, it will get worse. And so part of it is there will come a day where God says enough is enough and it's time to deal with and to, to punish sin because sin needs to be punished. But there is a greater purpose here. The second purpose is to cause people to repent. It's to get people's attention, to wake them up, and to make them realize, oh my goodness, you know, look what God is bringing on us. And there will be those who, that this will jar their memories. Maybe people who have heard the gospel before, there will be, we, we know many, many from Israel that will come to faith in Christ that have probably heard this before. They have the scripture and the foundation and the light bulb's going to come on and they're going to realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is who he claimed to be. And there will be those who come to faith. It'll shake them up enough. It's kind of like hitting rock bottom and, and waking you up. And I wonder if there's anybody there today, if I could just say in, in, in all you know, kindness toward you, but in, in, in being very direct to, if you're running from God, what is it going to take to get your attention? I mean, what's it going to take before you wake up and realize, I Man, I need to stop running and, and, and get things right. That is a huge part of the purpose of the tribulation period because God is gracious, he is patient, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's why, as we've been talking about the blood of Christ, through the shedding of his blood that he purchased us for God, all of us are guilty. The only way for us not to receive the punishment we deserve is because Jesus took it for us, because he shed his blood for us. If we'll put our trust in him, we will never be subject to the wrath of God. All right, let's read. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were, killed, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth 
as the fig sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? This chapter begins... By describing, you ever heard this phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? You've probably heard that before. That phrase has been used to talk about other things. Uh, Even in the counseling world, there are the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to relationships. There, back in uh, 1924, Notre Dame had an undefeated football team. They talked about four horsemen of the apocalypse there. Um, That term was used to to refer to four conservative Supreme Court justices who overturned many of President Roosevelt's New Deal initiatives during the Great Depression. I mean, this, this phrase is one that is, that is well worked into our culture. But what we know for sure in looking here at the real four horsemen of the apocalypse is this, that they mean business. And what we're seeing here is serious stuff. And I mean, we're, we're talking about major um, issues and, and plagues and things that are about to come. So let's start with the rider of the white horse. Who is riding a white horse? And at first glance, if you're just looking at this and reading it and at face value, you might think, is this Jesus? Jesus on a white horse because Revelation chapter 19 talks about Jesus coming on a white horse in victory. This is not Jesus. In fact, this is someone impersonating Jesus. There are some similarities, but there are also some significant differences between the rider of the white horse in chapter 6 and Jesus, the rider of the white horse in chapter 19. Uh, one of them, it says that in chapter 6 here, it says that a crown was given to him. The, word, the Greek word here for crown is the word stephanos, which means a victor's crown or a wreath. Think about the ancient Greek games. Can you get a visual of the winner and the little crown, you know, around that, that a wreath that is placed on their head? This is a temporary crown. The word used for the crown that Jesus wears in Revelation 19 is diadema. It's the word from which we get the term diadem. It means a jeweled crown and it is worn by a sovereign ruler. Significant difference there between the the fading crown and the, the crown of a sovereign ruler. This is someone who is pretending to be God, who is impersonating Christ, but isn't. And we'll see as we get further into the book of Revelation, this is a person who at first appears to bring peace, but ultimately brings destruction. Now, let's go back to the book of Daniel to gain some perspective, because again, so much of, of, of what is happening here is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Daniel, he talks about 77s that must take place. And In Daniel 9, 26 and 27, it says, After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. 
So Daniel is prophesying about this time. He says that the anointed one, obviously Jesus, uh, will be cut off. He will be put to death. And then it talks about one who will come later in this abomination that causes desolation. I believe this is the rider of the white horse in Revelation 6. But here's one of the interesting things about Old Testament prophecy. So often it had an immediate fulfillment. There was something that was about to take place that was kind of an initial fulfillment. And then there was also the future final fulfillment. And this abomination that causes desolation is a great example of that. In 168... B.C., uh, Antiochus IV was, was reigning. He was a king of Seleucid Empire from 175 to 164. Antiochus gave him the name, himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So you get an idea of what kind of person this was. He proclaimed himself to be Zeus. He went into the temple of the Jews and he set up an altar to Zeus. And in 168 BC, he took a pig. Now, if you know something about the Jews and what was clean, just, just to be kind of in your face, I'm going to desecrate your temple. He took a pig into the temple and sacrificed the pig on the altar of Zeus in the temple of God. And you might imagine that the, that the Jews went nuts. There was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Maybe you have heard of the Maccabean Revolt. This is what sparked all of that. Judas Maccabeus uh, began to form an army, and the Jewish people actually rose up against them. And they took back the temple and cleansed it, and 165 restored it. Um, that was an initial fulfillment of this abomination that causes desolation. But Jesus spoke of that term in Matthew 24. We read a little bit of that earlier. Jesus talked about it as a future event. So this is going to happen again. It will also have a future fulfillment where the temple will be rebuilt. There will be this abomination that causes desolation. I believe that's what we're seeing here is this, this person, this antichrist, this person who uh, imitates Jesus but isn't really. That's the rider of the white horse. And then we get to verse 4 and it talks about a second horse that is bright red. This rider represents war. Not too hard for us to understand in our, in our culture, in our time, the devastation that war can bring, the number of people that can be slain in a war. And we have seen so many people die in wars. Unfortunately, I wonder if we become a little bit desensitized to that because we hear about it so often. But this is going, again, just be at another level, at another scale. And so the rider of the red horse comes, and it says that he was allowed to remove all peace from the earth. And then keep in mind as well that the church has been pulled out of the world at this point. So there are some believers who have come to faith in Christ after the tribulation starts, but not nearly as many as were. And so you remove all that salt and light from the earth, and what do you get? It's not a good scene. There's a lot of bloodshed, a lot of war. And then the third horse, described in verse 5, is a black horse. And it says his, his rider is holding a pair of scales. This represents famine and economic collapse. We've all been reminded recently how fragile the world economy is, right? How fragile our own economy is as, as a nation. How intertwined economies are with one another. And so again, uh, it's not too hard to imagine uh, the collapse of economies. I mean, just look at what one little virus did, the impact that that had on so many economies worldwide. And so we can imagine what it would be like for this, this economic collapse, 
famine, uh, incredible inflation. In fact, it says that uh, a, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage and a quart of wheat was what was required to make a loaf of bread. So just put that in, in, in terms we can understand. So a, an entire day's wage for a loaf of bread. If you were to take a wage, and let's just say for the sake of round numbers, um, that, that we're talking about you know, $1,000 uh, a week, right? $52,000 a year as, as a, a day's wage, if that's the case. You're talking about five days. You're you know, talking about a couple hundred dollars. $200 or so a day being a day's wage. Can you imagine paying $200 for a loaf of bread? I mean, this is major inflation. These are, these are, are, are just devastating kinds of, of, of things that are happening here. And then there's this last little phrase at the end of verse 6. It seems a little odd. It says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. See, oil and wine belong to those who are rich. And so what he's describing here is this, this famine that is just devastating to those who don't have much. And then you've got the, the rich that are still have their oil and their wine and, and are not as impacted. And so there's a greater disparity here between rich and poor. We move on to verse 8. And there's the fourth horse, the apocalypse. It says that it's a pale horse. And um, when, you hear, when, when you see that term pale, I, I tend to think of kind of a you know, pale white type of a color. This is actually a Greek word chloros, from which we get the term chlorophyll. Chlorophyll is what gives plants and trees their green shade. So this is more of a pale green color. Maybe somewhat similar to the color of my face when there's turbulence in an airplane or if I try to ride a roller coaster, you know, something like that. But the consequences of the pale green horse are way, way worse than just an upset stomach. In fact, this is the only one of the horses that the rider is named. What's the name of the rider of the pale horse? Death. Yeah. And it says that he comes with the power to wipe out a fourth of the earth. And that will be done by killing with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. We've seen the sword. We've seen famine already. Pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. Again, think about plagues wiping out masses of people. This is not too uh, far-fetched for us to imagine because uh, the bubonic plague back in the 14th century, estimates are between 30 and 60% of the population in Europe died during that period from that one plague. And so we know what plagues can do and how people can be wiped out. And, and it says a fourth of the people are going to die. I mean, just stop and think about that for a minute. Look around you at four different people sitting around you and think one of those four isn't going to make it. Now, that's, that's not a prophecy over you today, right? But it, during this time, I mean, just let the reality of that sink in. A fourth of the population, it said, was going to die. And then one of the ways that it says that that was going to happen is by wild beasts. And I just have to tell you, I'll just, i got to share a little story. It's very funny. I was literally studying this and working on this part of the message and I look up, and there's five of our staff members, all, everybody in the office, everybody is standing outside my door. Now, 
most of the time they're really good about it. They know in the mornings that's when I'm studying whatever, and they generally kind of leave me alone for that. And so I, I looked up, and I see five people standing outside my door, and I thought, what in the world is going on? And so I, I looked up, and I'm like, yes. And Stephen comes in with a, with a Tupperware container, and he says, you want to see what's in here? And I'm thinking, yeah, I want to see what's in there. If it caused all five of our staff to come, you know, crowd outside my door, I definitely want to see what's in there. Yeah, I want to see what was in there. Yeah, you probably don't, but you're going to anyway. Here's, here's what was in the Tupperware. Big old, I mean, massive, massive spider. Now, I, I just found some humor that I was thinking about wild beasts, you know, attacking at the time that that happened. And just the fear that that would create. But speaking of fear, here's Kaylin's face was my favorite. There she is hiding behind Emily. They're just terrified. <laughs> Absolutely terrified at this spider. And Kaylin, I have to tell you, it's going to be a lot worse. So you won't be here. So you'll be good. You don't have to worry about it. But the wild beasts. I mean, just think about that. You know, all of these things, all these plagues and things that are happening. Not, not, not a pleasant time to be on earth. And then back in verse 9. It says, when they opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They're crying out to God and they're asking God, how much longer? How long till you avenge our blood? See, those, it's talking about those who had been martyred for their faith. And I want you to notice the way they address God. This is really important. Verse 10 says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord Holy and true. And then they're asking how much longer. But sovereign Lord, holy and true. Can I just tell you that when we get to heaven, there will be no question about who's in, in charge. There will be no question about God's holiness. There will be no question about whether what God says is true or not. I mean, that all of that has been settled. And if there were anybody who would ever... Uh, we would think might be likely to question the sovereignty of God, it would be those who had lost their lives because of their faith. I mean, these of all people might be the ones to say, is God really in control here? Why are these things happening the way they're happening? And, and, and they don't. They call him, they recognize him as sovereign Lord, holy and true. Guys, I don't know what you're going through today that might cause you to question God's sovereignty. That might cause you to question God's goodness. Is he really holy or the things that he says really true? But can I just encourage you with this? That he is. He is the sovereign Lord who is holy and true. Now his answer is a bit disturbing. Because when they said how much longer, his answer was, um, I'm going to give you this white robe. You can rest for a while until the rest of your brothers and sisters are killed for their faith. See, that, that there was more to come. There were more believers that still had to die for their faith. And that's what was coming, and yet God was still sovereign and holy and true. And then we get to the sixth seal, and that's as far. We don't get into the seventh one in this chapter. But the sixth seal was the great earthquake. Sun turns black, the moon looks like blood, stars fall from the sky, sky rolls back, mountains are shaken, you know, from their place, and islands removed, all this just crazy, crazy stuff. In Matthew 24, Jesus talked about famines and earthquakes and natural disasters and things like that, um, and he, he used this phrase, he said, it's the beginning of the birth pains. Ladies, I don't know how many of you who have been through birth have experienced what is referred to as Braxton Hicks contractions. 
Maybe you have. I have no right to speak into this. I obviously have not been there myself. Um, but I know that that's a thing. And the purpose of those contractions is to prepare the body and prepare the muscles for birth and that kind of thing. The Mayo Clinic describes them as, and I quote, mild, irregular contractions during pregnancy. Now, I guess mild is in the eye of the beholder. I would not be willing to say that to someone who is experiencing that. But here's what I've been told. That if you have to question, are these contractions the real deal? They're not. (laughs) That the initial Braxton Hicks contractions, although they are uncomfortable and they might get your attention, once you experience the real thing, you're like, oh my goodness, this is a whole different issue. When we look around, we see things like Hurricane Adalia the destruction, the devastation, it breaks our heart when we see those kinds of things. We see earthquakes, we see natural disasters, and everyone wants to know, is this the end of time because of that? Well, it is the beginning of the birth pains. But can I just tell you that what we're seeing now, as destructive as those things can be, doesn't even compare to what we eventually will see. And then here's the most disturbing part, and we'll end with this, verse 16. The response, all the, you know, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everybody is affected by this. Nobody's immune. They're running into the, to the mountains and in the caves. They're trying to hide. And verse 16 says, they're calling, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Their response, they know this is God's wrath, and their response is to try to hide from him. Rather than surrendering to him, they try to hide from him. I just want to end on that note today by asking you that question. Do you find yourself in a place where you're trying to run from God? I mean, thankfully, we are not in this time right now, but that same principle is often true of us. Rather than surrendering to him, we just try to hide from him. And can I just remind you, you can't do that. There's no escaping God. He's the God who sees all, who knows all. And the right response is not to try to run away from God. The right response is to surrender. You see, the people have the opportunity to turn to Him in faith. Even during this tribulation period, people can still turn to Christ in faith and be saved. And so many of them just absolutely refused to do it. So I go back and ask the question I asked earlier, what's it going to take? What is it going to take to get our attention To cause us to stop running from God and to surrender to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that that we would surrender to You. That we will do that even today, even now. Lord, we know how pointless it is in, in our minds to run from You. But so often, that's the response. But I pray today that for a response of faith, trust, and surrender. Thank You. Lord, that you do offer us grace, that you do offer us forgiveness, and that we don't have to experience your wrath. I pray that, that we, uh, Lord, are able to settle that issue. In your name we pray. Amen.